Though I'm an employee of Ronald Blue Trust, Talking Money represents my individual views and not those of my employer or any sponsor of the program. During the program, I may discuss market trends as well as specific financial planning techniques and investment ideas. These discussions are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations to any individual or organization. Work with your attorney or accounting or investment professional for specific individual advice and services. Any securities or investment products discussed on Talking Money are not insured by the FDIC, are not a deposit or other obligation of or guaranteed by any bank, and are subject to investment risks, including possible loss of principal amount invested. Good morning and welcome to Talking Money. This is Certified Financial Planner Professional Mike Miller, your host for today. So glad you're with us. If this happens to be the first time you're listening to Talking Money, just a quick reminder, this is not a sales program. This is an educational program. We're here to try to educate you about money, all different facets of money, and we're here to answer your questions, the most important thing. Special guest, uh, a repeating guest and, uh, and a veteran now to Talking Money, Mark Elam is a senior investment strategist at Ronald Trust out of Atlanta coming up to enjoy our fair city here again in greenville welcome once again to greenville glad to be here again with you mike yeah always a pleasure to have you up talking about investments as we always do when mark joins me on the on the radio so we um had a couple of questions come in uh one from my brother we'll talk about that later so my brother brian was speaking with him a couple of days ago and he was going to try to listen via the internet today uh, was talking about just where the market is and the risk tolerance and say, you know, I, I feel like we should get more conservative and so forth. And we want to cover that as part of the overall discussion of investments. But had another good question that came in from Russ, a longtime listener, a do-it-yourselfer, and it had more to do with bonds. And we haven't talked especially in depth much about bonds, especially bond funds versus individual bonds. And I think a lot of people have had that discussion in their, in their own mind and their own research and maybe with their with their professional advisor. And so I think it uh, a good education, especially since we post these on our our website, TalkingMoneyRadio.com, you'll see this posted. And so even if it gets a little technical, you can always come back and listen to it again. So his question, Mark, had to do with um, a bond fund. So he said some of the larger investment houses, he uses Fidelity in this case, are offering to manage only a portion of your portfolio. As I'm a do-it-yourself or money manager for retirement, and I follow a three-bucket strategy. We'll talk more about that later. So, because uh, I don't know if he, he came up with that by himself or came up with that because he's been listening to, to, to me here on Talking Money. Um, and so he's got uh, the three buckets, the short-term, intermediate, and longer-term bucket. Uh, so his question is, is, I think that getting a stock portfolio is not that hard to do using either ETFs or mutual funds. So that's the only statement he says about stocks, but I, I wanted you to, to comment on that. We'll both get some input on on that. Don't exactly what he means by that, but I think I understand what he means. So what are your thoughts on how easy is it to get a stock portfolio using ETFs or mutual funds? Yeah, it is easy, I would say, and low cost these days, much, much more so than, uh, you know, a couple decades ago, uh, it would cost you, it would be more expensive for that. Especially if but, it's an index mutual fund, not just a right. actively managed. And, and there are some good ones out there, but yeah. Many of the index funds are almost free, mm -hmm. but the question becomes, okay, what stock portfolio? So you could get an S&P 500 stock portfolio, and now you're going to be kind of concentrated in U.S. large, large companies. 
And is that the best idea? Well, it's been successful in recent years, but is it going to be successful going forward? Maybe not as diversified as you want to be. So maybe you want a, a equity portfolio that's more diversified across big companies, medium-sized companies, and small companies. So Small companies have really been doing well here lately. They're hitting yeah. record highs. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. um, so there's a question about that. Okay, do I want to all cap? Do I want to be diversified? And then there's the international aspect. Do I want to be globally diversified? And so how much? So, yeah, there are a lot of tools out there to build a diversified equity portfolio using ETFs, but you might need some guidance on how best to do that and, and not want to get into the game of kind of chasing the best performing funds or the best performing parts of the market. That would be, that would be less than ideal. So yeah. Yeah. yes and no, I'd say easy to get a stock portfolio, but putting, putting one together may not be so easy. So when I talk to especially prospective clients about how we might design a portfolio for them, I remind them that the, for the most part, the stock equity portfolio, even the bond portfolio, but especially the equity portfolio, because we primarily use ETFs and index mutual funds, the, the cost is, like you said, like nearly zero. It's, it's nearly non-existent. So what are you paying for? Because you could, you could buy those indexes yourself. So what you're paying for is the the design how to allocate, where to allocate, when to change that allocation, and monitoring that allocation to make changes along the way. And, you're, and maybe most importantly, not to have knee-jerk reactions when things don't go the way you think. And, and that's where I think most individual investors will have a downfall on their whole investment strategy is that it blows apart when something happens and they just get, get out of it completely they just they just jump ship and they shouldn't yeah. jump ship yeah those tough times are a minority of the time you know maybe five or ten percent or whatever but when those tough times come along you can make a yeah. you make a, a big mistake in terms of your long-term success by saying you know what i'm going to go to the sidelines or i'm going to sell some or i'm not i'm not sure what to do you know having a having someone to walk alongside you can really add a lot of value in those times which are which are infrequent but are important yeah yeah, they're infrequent, but they're they're big. And and generally speaking, they happen so fast, you you couldn't have predicted it. And and by the time you're ready to react, a lot of the a lot of the um, damage has already been done, and it's too late to try to get out then. And then of course, it, then you and it keeps going down further, and the person thinks, "Wow, I should have I should have gotten out when I should because it went down further." Um, but it's it's just one of those things, not being able to predict. And, and as we'll talk later, as we t talk design more on the bucket strategy that we use, that, that Russ also uses some form of, uh, that as long as you are, are not totally in the market, depending on your age and your goals and that kind of thing, because some people are, and they, they're fine with that. They, they don't need the money, so they're going long-term and don't worry about it, um, that it's important to, to keep diversified away from the stock market so you don't have to sell something when it's down and also have some resources available to buy into it. So I got a discount. It's a, it's a sale. Let's, let's buy something on sale. Okay. So the, the big part of his question has to do with bonds. So he says bucket two, which is his uh, two to seven year bucket of bond funds. He says, um, I think there's a significant difference between owning bond funds versus a bond portfolio. Do you agree that there's a significant difference between owning a grouping of bond funds or owning a bond portfolio. And he says, of course, if you do not agree that there is a significant difference between holding bonds versus bond funds slash bond ETS, could you explain why? So we already had a chance to chat on this a little bit yesterday, but um, let's uh, share with the listeners some of your thoughts. 
Yeah, there is a big difference between uh, individual bonds and uh, buying uh, bond ETFs, uh, exchange-traded funds. When we say ETFs, it's just a fancy word for something like a mutual fund that just trades all the time, exchange-traded funds, ETFs. Um, yeah, bond funds, um, you're getting the benefit of uh, economies of scale, if you will, being able to buy large blocks of bonds. And then when you own a fund, you own a little piece of, of all those little bonds in that fund versus trying to assemble a, a bonds of your own. You've got uh, price issues in terms of buying small lots of bonds, 25,000 or a hundred thousand or a million dollar block. You know, it, it gets, it gets less efficient to be able to buy those small amounts of bonds. And so uh, again, it's a matter of, okay, if you're going to buy individual bonds, who's going to help you kind of understand are they credit worthy? Is this state, if it's a municipal, are they going to pay back their, their money or what? So it's definitely, definitely different, definitely things to think about whether to go one way or the other. And we will continue this conversation after (laughs) our first break. So hate to interrupt you there. We're going waxing so eloquently about this. We'll be right back. Ronald Blue Trust is pleased to sponsor Talking Money. Ronald Blue Trust has distinct divisions that work with clients across the wealth spectrum. One division is Everyday Steward which serves clients who are just getting started to those with an investable net worth ranging from 100000 up to a million. For those desiring objective, biblical principles in their investments, cash flow management, financial planning, which includes retirement, insurance, tax, and estate, and their giving, Ronald Blue Trust's Everyday Steward Advisors can serve as their clients' stewardship coaches so they can focus on a living a life of purpose. For more information about Everyday Steward and the other divisions of Ronald Blue Trust, they can be found at ronblue.com. Ronald Blue Trust is a trademark used by Thrivent Trust Company and Thrivent Trust Company of Tennessee Incorporated, separate affiliated entities. Now back to Talking Money. And we are back with Talking Money and with my special guest, Mark Elam, Senior Investment Strategist at Ronald Blue Trust out of Atlanta. And, uh, and he's no stranger to this microphone. Mark has been on a number of times uh, since we joined the firm, two and a half, uh, be three years in March. Uh, time flies when you're having fun and sometimes when you're not it still it always flies on talking money we know that so we're talking about the question from russ he was talking about bond funds versus a bond portfolio meaning individual bonds and which is which is better and which would we prefer to have and and the reasons why so uh, and mark was talking a little bit before the break about the differences between the the bonds and the individual bonds so let's uh, let's see if we can answer that question a little more deeply. Yeah, there's definitely a difference. I think we've established that individual bonds versus bond funds. Individual bonds, you've got to make a judgment about the credit worthiness and you've got to get some help on that. Whereas a bond fund is going to kind of have that covered. That manager is going to be assembling bonds that are credit worthy and are, are not, you know, don't have worries about them being able to pay back the pay back the principal. Oh, obviously. And, and what about... Um, buying because one of the concerns russ has is the size of his bond right. portfolio how how do you buy those bonds you credit worthy just one thing what about the price you pay for it as an individual bond versus what a bond manager might pay inside that fund yeah little known fact um if you're assembling bonds individual bonds yourself as a retail investor you're kind of paying retail prices for those bonds whereas a bond manager gets to pay what we would call institutional kind of think of wholesale prices when he buys and sells those bonds and so a big difference the markup on a bond can be can be significant for retail investors. I think most individual investors are better off kind of assembling some bond funds as opposed to individual bonds. You really need to be into the millions of dollars in terms of what you're putting to work in individual bonds to have the kind of 
amounts, economies of scale, if you will, to assemble a good bond portfolio, assuming you have some help with that. I think most investors, uh, bond funds are going to be the way to go. But then it's about, okay, well, which bond funds? If you want to, you could be mm-hmm. taking a lot of risk with a long-term bond fund that has more yield, but it's got more risk in terms of interest rates moving. So again, right. you might need some help in terms of, well, which bond funds, what kind of maturities, what kind of quality do I need tax exempt income or taxable income mm-hmm. based on my tax bracket? A lot of questions to answer. Yeah. And there's, there's also that, uh, the question of when to sell the bond. So one of the advantages uh, that, that people will talk about with buying an individual bond or having a, a laddered bond portfolio would be that you don't have to worry about necessarily there being losses, at least if you hold that bond until maturity. So, okay. Except for the fact that if you didn't buy that mm-hmm. bond at par, so a hundred dollars, let's say, mm-hmm. and then it's going to, and you bought it at 102 or 105, whatever you bought, depending on what, what that's, currently trading for as a retail investor not being able to get the great prices for it then when it matures you're, you're guaranteed to get 100 that's right uh it's it's somewhat counterintuitive you think well i don't care what the price of that bond goes up and down i know i'm going to get paid at, at maturity i'm going to get my my money back but you may not get your money back as, as mike said if you paid more than the par value for instance you might have paid 105 percent of the face value of that bond. We call that 105. And that bond is going to mature at 100, as all bonds do. They pay off at 100% of the principal value. But but if you went in paying more than more than par and then you get par back, you actually, you, you got some of that money back in a higher coupon, but you did have a, a decrease in principal value in terms of what you get for what you paid. So yeah. it's not as simple as it might sound that, you know, I don't need to care about the value of that bond uh, until that maturity happens. Yeah, and then some people will pay for that bond and and then say, okay, all of a sudden I thought I had this great bond that's paying this great interest rates. And then they call it. That's right. Because that, the, the bond has a call feature in it. And the people who issued that bond say, well, there's no reason for me to pay 5% interest anymore. I can issue new bonds and get and pay 3%. So they issue new bonds, and then they pay off the people who got five, and they'll, they'll pay you off at, at – well, they, they usually have a call price in there, what they're going to pay it at, at par or whatever they're going to pay yeah, for, Yeah, they'll right? usually pay you a little bit more than par. Yeah. Just uh, that'll be in the provision. You may be 102, right. but if you paid 105 and you get called at 102, yeah. 102%, yeah. that's still and, – and you get called early – like, I, well, I, I want to keep this bond that's paying. Well, of course you do. And that's why they want to pay it off. It's because it's right. too attractive. So another, you know, kind of a pitfall, if you will, for yeah. um, owning individual bonds. So if you, but if your interest rate was high enough and let's say you're earning six or 7% and market is three, well then, and you had the advantage of keeping that for a year or so, well, you made an extra 4% there. So maybe you broke even when you, when it, when it was called or, or when it matured, that you may have lost that that premium that you paid for it, but you had a little higher interest rate. So there's some offsetting factors there. But, but another factor in the bond funds is, and, and it's similar to stocks, when you mentioned that you buy a stock fund, you don't just um, buy an S&P 500 replica because that's large U.S., large cap U.S. stocks. Uh, what about small, mid, international, emerging markets, and all the other different types of asset classes that are out there? Was well, somewhat similar uh, concept applies to bonds. That's right. You want diversification. 
with any kind of investment. And certainly even with bonds, you want diversification. So if you're buying bonds from a couple of different issuers, if it's a municipal bond, a city, a county or whatever, or a state, um, you'd really want to spread out your risks among a bunch of cities, a bunch of counties, a bunch of states to get the, you know, for the most peace of mind and safety around your principal, a bond manager, a bond fund is able to do that across hundreds, literally hundreds of issues, whether it's uh, states, counties, municipalities, or whether it's corporate bonds, different companies. So that bond manager can do a lot more diversification and, and watch over those bonds much more than an individual investor can do assembling a, a bond portfolio themselves. And they can determine when's the best time to sell that bond as it's, as it gets closer to, to maturity and we're not even going to talk into duration and all the things. That we, we don't want to get that much in the weeds, but that's another fact. This, that's all factored in here is the duration, not just, right. which is much more important, in my opinion, than the maturity. Um, when you get to international bonds, there are foreign bonds. Then you have to ask that question again, are they hedged or unhedged? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't even think about that. They'll see one bond fund. Wow, this bond fund, foreign bond fund, did a lot better than this other foreign bond fund. Well, do you know why? Is it because one was hedged against the U.S. currency and one was not? That's right. And that's a bond manager's looking at that every day. And he's got instruments to maybe hedge out and to counter neutralize the effect of currency movements. He, they have the tools. The bond manager has the tools. An individual investor would not have those tools. So your comment, Mark, uh, in order for you to really have the capacity of the, of the critical mass in order to have a cost-effective individual bond portfolio, you mentioned uh, a couple of million dollars of just bonds, not a, not a portfolio of, of a couple, couple million, but a couple million that's just in fixed income. That's right. And that's probably cutting it close. It is. And you're still, you still might be paying the kind of the higher prices with the retail prices for those, even if, even if you had uh, those kinds of dollars to invest, depending on how you're able to actually buy those bonds, who you're using as your broker to, to buy, to assemble a portfolio. Yeah. And I found sometimes, and I'll see, especially a prospective client that comes in that has some individual bonds, and they look at the price that's on their statement, and they assume that's what it's worth, and not realizing that, well, when it's time to actually sell that bond, that might not be the price that you get, because that's kind of what the price is that it's going for in the marketplace, which includes institutional investors, right? Yeah, it's only worth what someone's willing to pay for it on the day you you try to sell it. So uh, there can be uh, what we call a spread between what it's worth for someone to, to buy it from you or what you would have to go out and buy it from somebody in the marketplace. That spread can be, can be quite large in, in when it comes to individual bonds. Yeah. And I love Russ, the fact that he's a do yourselfer and we've had a number of, of quote unquote conversations over the years as a regular listener. And um, so I think he's, he's very good at what he does and, and obviously asking these questions, he learns more and can do a better job uh, on his own, which is great. Uh, but even even somebody like Russ or other people that we've talked to that are are very sharp at doing it themselves, I, I like to ask that question, well, what is your succession plan? If something happens to you, mm-hmm. who takes over this portfolio? Uh, is your spouse going to be one that is very comfortable with this and can take it over? Or is that spouse going to just, it could be he or she, uh, usually it's the she, that is going to just sell everything. So I don't, I don't know what's in here and I don't know what the risk is. So I'm just going to sell everything. And that may not be the smart thing to do. So I think having a relationship before you get to the point where you can't, where you either leave this earth and can't do it anymore, or you become disabled or you get to the age where it's just not good for you to be. You're not as sharp as you used to be. We all get that way. 
that that you have somebody else that's in mind that they can call. I mean, I've had a number of people that I've run into over the years that they enjoy the program and enjoy getting the advice and so forth. And they've, they've told me that, yep, if something ever happens to me, I told my wife, call Mike. <laughs> well, well, that's fine. That's all fine and great. But if she never listens to the radio and she doesn't know me from Adam, it's, you might, it might pain her to actually listen um, to the program sometimes. But, but even coming in for an introductory conversation, I've had people do that before. They just come in to meet, let the spouse meet uh, our team so that if something ever happens, they know, who to call they they're comfortable with that we even do the same thing with a client and spouse uh, that have children that are going to take over a, a sizable estate or even not so sizable estate get them in the office let's all meet so that they are comfortable they know that somebody competent and that's uh, trustworthy is handling their parents financial matters and they and it makes an easier transition if something happens to them for their kids to take over we'll be right back after these short messages Ronald Blue Trust is pleased to sponsor Talking Money. Ronald Blue Trust has distinct divisions that work with clients across the wealth spectrum, private wealth, everyday steward, family office, and the professional athlete division. The company's largest division, private wealth, is designed to provide financial guidance for clients with an investable net worth of a million dollars or higher. Private wealth advisors can provide advice in many areas, including managing cash flow, growing assets while decreasing debt, overseeing investment portfolios, developing tax-efficient estate and strategic giving plans, and utilizing trust services if needed, all with a big picture in view. The Private Wealth Division has 16 offices across the United States, including Greenville. For more information on Ronald Blue Trust offices and the advisors serving there, please visit ronblue.com. Ronald Blue Trust is a trademark used by Thrivent Trust Company and Thrivent Trust Company of Tennessee Incorporated, separate affiliated entities. Now back to Talking Money. We're coming up at about 25 before the hour here on Talking Money. This is Mike Miller, your host for today. My special guest, Mark Elam, Senior Investment Strategist with the Ronald Blue Trust Team and Investment Strategy Group down in Atlanta. So we've got to know each other pretty well over the last several years that we joined the company. So I'd love to have Mark on just to give insights about the market. A lot of people are concerned about it. Mentioned at the top of the program that had a conversation with my uh, brother, uh, uh, Brian and his wife, Patty, the other night talking about uh, just some nervousness about the markets and so forth. And uh, so I said, well, listen today, Brian, because we're talking to Mark and we'll, we'll get you some some thoughts about uh, what you should do. Uh, so anyway, talking about the markets uh, and we've talked to, I know the last time we talked about inflation, how that's going to affect things. And people are concerned about all the spending that's going on on the government side, just passing that other bill. The House passed uh, the part of that, that old infrastructure bill they talked about in order to to get prepared for the next big one and all the money they want to spend and how all that's going to affect everything. So, you know, should, how, how concerned should our listeners be and my brother should be about what the market is doing, how expensive it is. I, I talked to listen to several analysts this week, read some, and they were talking about how the, the market is overbought. Uh, but still that the, over the next, uh, really two months, two and a half months, that the market still could look pretty good. He said, one of them said he expected might have a, a drawdown next week as a little, as it, uh, what did he say, backfills. I think he says retreats and backfills a little bit, and then it'll start going back up again. It's it's funny to listen to these guys that have to put timetables on them. And he said, and by, but by February, uh, you know, we might be having a, a little more of a, a negative issue by you know, a bigger bit of a pullback. So, uh, 
how well he knows that, you know, I don't know. He's good. He's been around a long time, mm-hmm. but still putting any time time frame, I think is uh, a little interesting. It is. And uh, a lot of chatter about that, but you never get like accountability. I want to say someone, yeah. <laughs> okay, six months ago you said this right. and that actually didn't pan out. Right. And what's your reasoning? And, but no, we, we never do that. It's all about looking forward. Well, I say anybody making a, a prediction should put the prediction far enough out that by the time it gets here, people will forget that they exactly. did that prediction. <laughs> it is. Well, you know, the market's hitting records here recently and, and in recent days and, uh, more and more questions from clients, you know, uh, concern, and this looks like a bubble and, uh, should we do something and uh, stocks just look expensive. And, and, you know, I, I, my first thing to say is just enjoy it. You know, we're, we're, we're making <laughs> money in your equities, your long-term, your long-term bucket, if you will. And, um, you know, on the one hand, I want to say, you know, it, sh- it should be hitting records. The economy's coming back. Corporate profits are mm-hmm. coming back. Right. Uh, we have a long cycle in front of us in terms of economic growth, and that's really what powers stock prices in the end of the day is the, the earnings of the companies. And corporate profits are rebounding strongly. We, we saw earnings reports over the last couple of weeks. We had a great labor market report on Friday from, right. uh, from jobs, unemployment rates falling. So there's a lot of good news out there that could you know, somewhat explain uh, why are stocks doing so well. But a lot of that's that's looking back. So that's a rearview mirror because mm-hmm. when you when you see those kind of statistics come out, that's looking back the corporate earnings of what they had already. So so one question people would ask, yeah, well, how how do we know what's going to be like six months from now, a year from now? We knew that the GDP was a lot lower uh, than it was projected to be this last quarter. Is that going to rebound? And 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 how would all the different government uh, influencers impact that potential return going down? Yeah, there's been a lot of stimulus and mm-hmm. there will continue to be stimulus. All that stimulus, we, we don't we haven't seen all the benefits of that. And we're going to get some more right. stimulus. It takes a couple this, of years, doesn't it, to really yeah. fully. Yeah. This latest bill, there'll be some there'll be some future stimulus uh, in terms of money going into the economy. That's what we mean by stimulus, um, which drives growth, drives earnings, drives uh, corporate profits and and eventually drives stock prices. In fact, stock prices typically anticipate good news in the future. So those stocks right. prices we're seeing today are the market's gauge of what's going to happen over the next six to 12 months in the future. Right. So we're kind of baking in with today's prices, what the market expects uh, in the future. That's why we, we uh, you guys, and we often tell people that uh, when they, when they hear some negative news that's about to happen, or maybe it just happened and we'll tell them that, well, that, that is more than likely already baked into the price. So, so being worried about something that has already been announced and it's already known, it's too late then. It's already part of the deal. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. So, uh, so how, do we, how do we go about trying to just make sure that we don't get caught up? Because we know, I can, I can guarantee people, the stock market will go down. Uh, I don't know when. I don't know how far. And I don't know for how long, but I know it will go down sometime because that's, that's right. just what it does. Okay. I get the question. So are we going to have a correction? Yes. And my answer is <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> but if you ask me when, when, Mark, I say, I don't know. I don't know. But we're, we're getting closer every day to whenever that will happen because we know history tells us we have corrections. We will yeah. have pullbacks. Some of them can be extreme and kind of typically tied to a business cycle, like a recession. Others are more temporary. The average correction, a year to year and a half, uh, but we rebound coming out of that. And that's why, again, we can talk about the buckets. That's why for long-term 
objectives, long-term growth, you, you need to be willing to kind of ride through those temporary pullbacks. And you're able to do that because you have other assets that are have different objectives and are invested differently. So why shouldn't somebody, though, say, okay, well, we know prices are high versus what they were a year ago, six months ago, th- three years ago. Uh, you know, they're, they're at a high point right now that we take some off the table in that long-term bucket mm-hmm. just because we know it's going to go down and why not, um, you know, even if we miss out on some of the upside between now and the time it does go down, then, but we still um, feel better. We sleep better at night or something. Mm-hmm. Well, why, why not well, use that strategy? Well, I challenge the assumption. We don't know. <laughs> and we know that prices are high, but we don't know that they won't go higher and they, they most likely will. Um, they may pull back at some point, but mm-hmm. that that whole game of trying to predict uh, they seem high. They're going to pull back. Let's take let's go to the sidelines and get back in. I always say you have to be right twice. You, you have to be yeah. right coming out and going back in. And it's going to be really hard to go back in if you are if you do get it right and stocks pull back. You may want to you may want to sell even more. You may want to pull back even more. So uh, why why not just stay? invested with those long-term assets ride through the corrections history shows us that eventually markets recover and that's the winning strategy yeah i want to talk some more about some of that uh, especially the strategy of getting in and out at the right time and and being having to be right twice but we want to take our phone call so we have johannes calling us from greenville looks like has a question about bonds and good morning welcome to talking money Good morning. Uh, yeah, bonds, equities. I'm 75. My wife is 75. And generally, we keep our portfolios half and half, 50 equities, 50 bonds. We only own one small bond for Duke Power in my wife's account. and uh, But everything else is mutual funds. Is that generally what is reasonable for a man my age at 75? All right, Mark. That doesn't sound too bad for me, uh, 50-50. I mean, you thinking about life expectancy, and I mean, some people might react to say, say, wow, that's pretty aggressive for a couple in their, you know, in their mid-70s. But your life expectancy would, would be such that you need a portion of your portfolio that's still there for growth. So I like the right. 50% that's still in stocks, and I like the 50% that's in bonds because while you do have a, a some years to go and a life expectancy and so, and so the ability to kind of recapture from a correction or whatever, um, that 50% in bonds is a cushion or a hedge against having to do that with that, that part of your portfolio. So no, I I think that's a, I think that's a great mix. Yeah. Let me ask you a question about that, Johannes. You say it's 50, 50. So has it always been 50, 50? And if your stock's done well enough, did you rebalance back to 50, 50 or do you do that fairly regularly? What I do generally when the market, when the equities slump down a, a good portion of the of the value, then I'll go 60 equities as it rises back up and 40 bonds. But, but because of the, the increase in the equities, I think last month we went back to the 50-50 uh, thing. But, yeah, we'll go back and forth between 60, 40 when the market is down to capture some of that growth as it comes back up. Yeah, and I, and and I think, I, go ahead. I also keep some, I try to keep some cash on hand just so when the market does go down, uh, you know, a substantial amount, a good correction, then I'll, I'll buy back into the equities. 
No, it sounds like you got a pretty good handle on this, and you do all this yourself through. Uh, you got a, a brokerage account, maybe at uh, Schwab or Fidelity or something like that. You do those things through. Yes, yes, I, I, yeah, I use a broker to do all that. Yeah, and okay. I've been with that broker for. 15 20 years so i'm, I'm very comfortable yeah. with those so how much how much do you need this portfolio to help you supplement your income um about a thousand dollars a month that's it okay so i don't know what that percentage is but it sounds like it's probably a fairly small percentage of the total so in actuality you could afford to have more growth you know you could go up to probably 70 80 percent growth just from the amount of need that you have depending on what your longer term goal is. So I'm not saying you should do that, but um, but I've, we do have some clients who say, you know, I got this great pension. I've got social security. I only need this small amount out of my portfolio. I'm really investing for my children or I'm investing for a ministry. And so I don't care. I, the, the ups and downs, it doesn't matter, especially for someone like yourself who sounds like you're, you got a pretty good handle on uh, coming and going with it and you're not you're not getting nervous when it goes down. You're actually buying more that you could, uh, you, you, it, it doesn't hurt necessarily to go up on the risk. It's depending on your need. And other people just would be so uncomfortable with that fluctuation. They're going to want to go down to only 30% that's in equities because they just can't, can't take that fluctuation. But I think one of the things that you're doing with your portfolio and keeping at least 50-50, even at 75, is you're also helping offset that risk of cost of living. So depending on what your long-term care needs might be 5, 10, 15 years from now, if you get too conservative, which you have not, but if you did because you reduced that equity portion back, then you, you run the risk, an additional risk. You may reduce the risk of volatility, but you increase the risk of not being able to keep up with inflation, the cost of long-term care, and, and those kind of things. So I think it sounds to right. me like you're doing a good job. Mark? No, and the other thing I would add is, uh, as Mike was saying earlier, I hope your your spouse, your wife, has met your broker and who, you, who you're working with so that, you know, something unexpected happened. There's the continuity there. She'll have the peace of mind uh, of knowing that there's somebody there to help out with that, uh, what, maybe what you've been you've been taking care of and handling uh, and with some assistance, she'll, there'll be continuity and she'll, she'll know who that person is and, and comfortable with them yeah. in terms of helping. Yeah. She, she knows the broker. She's known that broker for 10, 15 years as well. She's not financially astute, but she, but, but the broker knows all that. And, uh, and she knows how to contact him and what to talk about. Yeah, that's that's great. That sounds like a good plan. And also make sure your broker has a succession plan. So if, as they get older and if they're not there, there is somebody there that could could back him or her up to maintain the same type of of um, right. portfolio that, right. that you've been able to do because that that isn't we've had we've seen that as an issue as well. But pretty much uh, I think uh, you, you're doing a, a good job with it and uh, just keep up the good work. Yeah, I, I think you've got the basis covered. Good for you. Any other, you. any other question? Okay. No, that was just, I just want some some confirmation that what I'm doing is uh, pretty good for a guy that's 75. Yeah, no, no it sounds like well you're done. still still pretty with it mentally. So uh, I think that's, uh, that's fine, just uh, as long as you have those contingencies taken care of. And, uh, and of course, uh, make sure, because sometimes the brokers don't do a lot of financial planning. Keep listening to Talking Money. So when we talk about qualified charitable distributions and other tax planning ideas, that you have that you can implement those as well in case they don't um, make you aware of those as well. I listen every Saturday. Great. All right. I appreciate that. All (laughs) right. Have a great weekend. You too. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. All right. We are 
way past time for our, but we wanted to get that call in that was very important so uh we'll be right back talking money is brought to you by ronald blue trust with nationwide trust capabilities ronald blue trust provides wealth management strategies and trust services based on biblical principles to help clients make wise financial decisions live generously and leave a lasting legacy with over 11 billion of assets under management and advisement and a network of 16 offices including greenville Ronald Blue Trust serves over 10,000 clients in all 50 states through distinct divisions and offers services across the wealth spectrum in these key areas. Financial retirement estate planning, investment management and solutions, charitable giving strategies, personal trust and estate settlement, bill paying, family office services, business consulting, and institutional client services. More information about Ronald Blue Trust can be found at ronblue.com. Ronald Blue Trust is a trademark used by Thrivent Trust Company and Thrivent Trust Company of Tennessee Incorporated, separate affiliated entities. Now back to Talking Money. And welcome back to Talking Money. This is Mike Miller, your host, uh, my special guest, Mark Elam, Senior Investment Strategist at Ronald Blue Trust and the Investment Strategy Group uh, in Atlanta. So we're talking about all different kinds of investments, had some good conversations. Uh, that was a, a great question from Johannes. We had a great question to open up with from Russ. And so I know one of the things that people are concerned about, especially with the with what the government's doing and so forth, we get that question a lot about what about inflation? Um, we talked about it being transitory. You know, so what's that mean? And is it transitory? And and give us your thoughts on how much how worried should we be about inflation, especially as it relates to investing in stocks yeah well and inflation is one of your you know your main enemies when it comes to long-term wealth creation Mm -hmm. and uh it's it's just kind of like this small and this not so small lately but this tax on your purchasing power if you will that each and every year you know your assets are worth two two percent or three percent whatever less and so you need to kind of factor that into whatever your plan is your your wealth for you know for your wealth for your asset uh, for your portfolio and so um, it, it's something you you need to pay attention to. And, and yeah, we've had higher than in the normal inflation here in recent months. The Federal Reserve calls it transitory, which just means they don't believe it's permanent. They believe it it's passing some of these, uh, whether it's gas prices or oil prices or supply chain issues with semiconductors or used cars or all of that. Their point is, you know, these things will settle down as the economy readjusts coming out of the pandemic. And these uh, bottlenecks, if you will, in our production uh, get cleared up. Others are more, you know, concerned saying, well, maybe these things are not so temporary. They might be baked in and be a little bit more permanent. And the, the Federal Reserve has tried to reassure us that, you know, they have the tools if inflation persists longer than they expect and gets to a higher level than, than they desire. Mm-hmm. They have tools to uh, to combat that. And, uh, you know, we'll just have to give it time and see. Yeah, you just never know. I think one of the best inflation hedges is paying off your debt uh if prices are going to keep going up and they go up uh, go up faster what what is it how how can you fight that except for buying things earlier if you buy things now instead of waiting six months and and how can you buy things you may even need not just want if so much money is going just to pay for things that you bought in the past and so you're just paying off debt so what what kind of investing is good to help offset inflation? 
yeah, that's that's the kind of the well, what do I do about it? If it's a temporary, if it's permanent, whatever. The thing about it is we we um, in terms of how we invest, we tell our clients diversified portfolios are really your best defense against inflation. And what do we mean by that? Well, you need to have some a portion of your portfolio that's invested for long term growth. And that's typically stocks. And stocks have a great record over long periods of time as being a good inflation hedge because corporate profits go up if inflation goes up. Stock prices go up if inflation mm-hmm. goes up. And you get growth over and above the rate of inflation with with equity, with stock investments. And so a diversified portfolio needs to have that in it. You might have some real estate investments in your portfolio. Real estate historically has been a good inflation hedge. There are different ways to access real estate investments. You can actually do it through stocks that invest in retail properties. You can do direct or private uh, real estate. There's, there's but ways even, to invest Even that, there. we talk about having bubbles. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of areas of real estate's in that same bubble. Some like, are. Like everything's expensive. <laughs> no, not just stocks. Like everything's gone up. It seems, yeah. <laughs> So and then when it comes to uh, bonds, you know, you can uh, you keep your maturities uh, more intermediate and short term than long term, because if 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 inflation goes up, interest rates will go up and long term bonds will be hit harder by higher inflation. So what's in what's intermediate mean? Yeah, intermediate. That's a good question. Three to seven, three to nine years versus, you know, it's tempting to go out 20, 30 years in bonds and get Mm -hmm. higher interest rates. Well, interest rates are so low. I need to go out longer to get high interest rates. Well, that that's good, except if rates go higher, your principal value of those bonds goes down because the maturities Mm -hmm. are longer. And so you're going to get hit. and, And that's more likely to happen if inflation if inflation perks up. So what about uh, people say, uh, generically, the stock market is too high. And when you ask more specifically, it's like, well, I mean, U.S. stocks. Mm-hmm. So how are U.S. stocks priced as far as their their average values and, and price going forward with a future price to book, price to earnings, those kind of things versus some emerging market stocks or some developed uh, international stocks? Right. Yeah, it, it is statement, you know, stocks are expensive. Well, some are and some aren't. Even within the U.S., the biggest companies, the largest cap, we call them large cap companies, many of them have gotten very expensive. The, and I won't mention names, but some of the biggest companies. And, you can go ahead and mention names. Uh, okay. The Googles, the Amazons, <laughs> the Apples, uh, Facebooks, they've gotten expensive. But what we're seeing here in recent months is the market broadening out and other companies participating and having their stocks go up. And these really expensive stocks, um, they're the, the cheaper ones, the lower valued stocks across the market, mid-sized, small size companies are doing better here recently. That's a good sign. So yeah, there are parts of the stock market, the U.S. stock market are very expensive. And then when you look overseas, globally, prices are much more uh, much more reasonable, if you mm-hmm. will, when it comes to even developed markets like Germany and U.K. and and Japan. And then even emerging markets, the Chinas, the Koreas, uh, the Indias of the world their stock prices are very reasonable. Yeah. So I, I would recommend and suggest that if, uh, because we don't think you just get out of the stock market. I mean, yes, rebalance. So if your stock portfolio has done well, then yeah, that's the time to go ahead and, and get some out of there. And you can put some of the long-term money. I mean, if you're not worried about that, just leave the long-term money. But if there's too much in there, which is hard to imagine, you, know, you can always rebalance or at least rebalance internally inside that. Take the more expensive stuff out and buy some of the, the stuff that's that's not as overpriced. And then if you have a need that you know you're going to have uh, for some substantial amount of money in the next year, two, three years, then put that in something safer. 
and put that in cash even because you know you're going to need it. Take some chips off the table. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, Mark. Glad to have you with us again today. Time flies as usual. If you got a question for me, Mike at TalkingMoneyRadio.com. Mike at TalkingMoneyRadio.com. So glad you're listening today. We'll be back next week with some more discussion on Talking Money. <laughs> 